If you had money to invest, would you study the stock market, diversify your portfolio, reduce your risk by dollar cost averaging, or would you be more likely to stuff your money in a mattress? I confess that I am relieved that the Board of Pensions of the Presbyterian Church makes most of my investment decisions. In my heart of hearts, I tend to agree with Mark Twain, who said, October, this is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are July, January, September, April, November, May, March, (laughs) June, December, August, and February. And I agree with Milton Berle, who said that the problem with the stock market is that everyone, every time one guy sells, another one buys, and they both think they're smart. (laughs) Some people say buy gold. Others say buy real estate. Still others bet on the horses. All of them are seeking, as Charles Schwab's ad puts it, to own their tomorrow. Today we look again at Jeremiah, who takes a break from his weeping and lamenting to make an investment. It's about 587 BCE, and Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, is besieging the city of Jerusalem. For 30-some chapters, Jeremiah has been predicting doom for God's people. The king of Judah, King Zedekiah, finally takes this personally when Jeremiah says that the king himself will end up being dragged off to Babylon as a captive. Jedekiah jails Jeremiah for treason. So Jeremiah is imprisoned in the palace when the word of God comes to him with instructions to redeem a piece of family property near his hometown of Anatoth. God says that Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, is going to show up and offer him this investment opportunity. When Hanamel does indeed appear with the sales proposal, the prophet decides he's heard an authentic word from the Lord. Jeremiah takes no small effort to make sure that the transaction is duly and legally executed and we get all the details. He gets witnesses to watch the whole transaction so that they can testify to the price, the exchange of the deed, and the terms and conditions of the sale. The deed itself is then given to Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch, with strict instructions that two copies of the deed, one that's sealed and one that's unsealed, are to be placed in a clay jar to be preserved, sort of the ancient equivalent of a safety deposit box. All of this must have mystified Hanamel and the crowd of guards watching this little bit of prophetic theater, what some call an acted parable, No real estate agent in any century would come close, come within a 10-foot pole's distance of this real estate transaction. The fair market value of a piece of property that's about to be invaded by Nebuchadnezzar is precisely zero, at least to a Judean. This is probably why Hanamel is unloading it. He wants his assets to be liquid and he's probably giggling all the way to the bank, or more likely all the way out of town, out of harm's way. But the last verse of this passage, verse 15, 
tells us Jeremiah's motive. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. On the other side of doom, there is hope, says God. It's the ultimate insider trading, isn't it? Investment advice from God? Except that Jeremiah has to accept this on faith, because unlike normal insider trading situations, there are no facts on the ground, neither secret nor public. There is nothing in this historical situation that would support a conclusion that this is a smart investment, that this is a good deal. Jeremiah acts on faith and lives in hope that God's purposes will be worked out in the course of time even if there is nothing, nothing pointing to it right now. Seventy years ago, in January 1943, three months before he was arrested and later killed by the Nazis, the Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words about Christian hope and faith during dark times. There remains for us only the very narrow way often extremely difficult to find, of living every day as if it were our last, and yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. It is not easy to be brave and keep that spirit alive, but it is imperative. It's telling, it's significant, that while Bonhoeffer speaks of hope, He doesn't offer any warm and fuzzy or especially reassuring words about the immediate future. And of course, as it turned out, he was talking about trusting a great future that he personally did not reach. It reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr., who said, The arm of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Like Bonhoeffer, King knew that he would not see his dream of equality realized in his lifetime. He knew that the struggle of black Americans had been going on for centuries, from the time people were brought here in slave ships, to the end of slavery during the Civil War, to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 60s. In April 1968, King preached his famous sermon about having been to the mountaintop, where he could see the promised land. He might not get there, he said, with the folks who were listening to him that night. And indeed, he was killed the very next day. Forty years later, we elected a black man as president of the United States. That was inconceivable in 1968. Most of the people who struggled and sacrificed for the much greater equality we have today did not live to see the dream. And yet, these people continued to move toward that dream. They continued to live into hope. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison, he wrote a letter to his fiancée, Maria von Wiedemeyer. He wrote, When Jeremiah said in his people's hour of direst need, that houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land, it was a token of confidence in the future. Our marriage must be a yes to God's earth, 
It must strengthen our resolve to do and accomplish something on earth. Bonhoeffer's words are as true today as they ever were. Bonhoeffer was telling his fiance, they must live as though there is hope because our faith is that there is hope, ultimately. We don't live in Nazi Germany, but we are surrounded by bad news that could drive us to despair. Congress threatens to shut down the government, again. A mass shooting, again. Chemical weapons in Syria, the siege of a shopping mall in Nairobi, the collapse of a building in Mumbai, a deadly earthquake in Pakistan, and the global warming, which scientists conceded last week is extremely likely to be caused by humans. That's up from very likely. We might be tempted to stick our heads in the sand and ignore the news because we feel so helpless. Or we might be temp tempted to live a kind of a hurricane party existence. A hurricane party, if you've never lived on the Gulf Coast, is a party that's held while the hurricane is coming on shore at which people consume large quantities of alcohol. It's sort of the ultimate expression in eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is not who we are. That is not what God calls us to do. The people who have Jeremiah as their prophet, the people who have Jesus as their savior, the people who have Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King Jr. as their martyrs, the people who know that the God of the Bible is the source of their lives, these people do not despair. These are people who live lives of radical hope, a hope which is not simply some sentimental feeling, but a hope and an orientation which is a commitment to action, an orientation which allows us to see the world differently and to bring that hope-filled vision to light. We in the church are these people. We are the ones who have been called by our baptism to bring hope to the world. We are the ones challenged to buy land when the experts would say, not now, the market is not good. You would be foolish to buy now. We are the ones challenged to invest in an uncertain future. Charles Schwab says, own your tomorrow. We are the ones who insist that God owns tomorrow, and it is good. We are the ones called to live into hope. And in particular this morning, I am aware that the world around us seems to be saying, church is irrelevant, religion is irrelevant, faith in a higher power is ridiculous, can't be proven a waste of time, the church is dying. Jeremiah reminds us that we have an inheritance of commitment and trust and sometimes sacrifice from saints of previous generations we, who we are today has been passed down from Jeremiah to Jesus of Nazareth to Martin Luther to Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Martin Luther King Jr. to a church here in San Anselmo built by seminary professors with a vision to us today. We are the current generation entrusted with the great treasure once sealed in a jar in Jerusalem. Although we have to be careful with that sealed-in-a-jar metaphor, 
I read an article last week that compares passing on the faith to young people to passing on your grandmother's doilies. They just don't look right on the dressers and end tables of most contemporary homes, and you can't bear to part with them, so you stick them in a drawer where they won't get wrecked. Faith isn't a family heirloom in that sense, to be preserved exactly as it was when we received it. It's more like a toy, the kind of toy you give to a child to use, to play with, rubbing the hair off until it's real, as the Velveteen Rabbit puts it. Our faith is alive and lively, just as the church ought to be, and we don't know what either will look like in 20 years, or 50, or 100. Jeremiah invites us to invest in it anyway, to trust that the dark times in which we live will not be the final word in God's story, because God loves us And God loves God's world and the church, and the Spirit is pulling us towards something better. To trust that God not only loves us, but claims us and calls us, calls the church to bring hope to the world. To trust that even if the church evolves over time into something that we can't predict, the church will remain the living community of the saints seeking to love God and have compassion for our neighbors, and it will continue to be our responsibility to keep hope as a living reality, not merely a past legacy. Next month, as we do each fall, we'll begin what we call our stewardship campaign, our congregational giving campaign. It's the time when we remind people of this responsibility and invite them to invest in our future the future to which God is calling us. Our theme this year is Let Your Light Shine. This theme captures the hope we bring, that we have worked together to bring to our community in San Anselmo and the world around us for over 100 years and counting, trusting that God is at work in and through us. As Thomas Warren puts it on the cover of your bulletins, Jeremiah says to us today, buy the land, build up the church, build up God's kingdom, build up God's reign of justice and righteousness and peace, invest in and prepare the ground for the future. Show the world that God's spirit is alive and well here on earth. Indeed, the future future of our lives, the future of our churches, the future of our world is not predetermined. The future hangs in the balance, and God calls the church to make an investment in that future. There's an old Greek proverb which says that a society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they know they will never sit. I believe we can say the same thing about a great church. Trusting that God owns our tomorrow. May we, the Church of Jesus Christ, have the courage and strength and faith to make that investment.